sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Kimberly Weir, Professor of Political Science at Northern Kentucky University, and I'm talking with Dr. Joe Zamet-Lucia. He has a fascinating background. He began as a physician, moved into industry R&D, founded Radix, a nonprofit public policy think tank, and started his own management consulting firm in Cambridge, expanding to offices in New York and Tokyo. Today, we're here to talk about his latest book, The New Political Capitalism. Hello, Joe, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your new book, arguing that businesses and societies can thrive in our deeply politicized world. Hello, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. When I was reading your book, I guess because my area is international relations, I thought that at times you sounded like a mercantilist and other times you sounded like a neoliberal. Can you start by explaining these terms since I think they're central to your book? So um, all these terms have kind of strange and contested definitions, of course. So what I understand by mercantilism is the kind of 18th, 19th century idea that a country only gets wealthy at the expense of others. So it's, it's kind of you have to have a positive trade balance and accumulate wealth. And that was, that was the form of capitalism that was prevalent um, in the kind of 18th, 19th century. Um, then we moved to various other forms of uh, capitalism, industrial capitalism, consumer capitalism, um, and what I believe we're in at the moment, although it's dying, the, 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 the idea of financialized capitalism, which was a result of the neoliberal ideas that you mentioned, which is laissez-faire, let everything rip, deregulate, um, and let business make its money. And that was a viable, it, you know, it reached maybe its height in the 80s and 90s when it was a viable way to proceed because during that time the window of political ideas was actually very narrow um, we all believe that liberal democracy had won the battle of ideas um, you know th- th- we we all more or less believed in the same things we believed that business was there simply to make money for shareholders there was this narrative during the reagan thatcher years and subsequently that we all bought into Um, China was going to democratize if we traded with it, all these things we believed. Um, So there wasn't really much broad, very much broad political debate. Now, of course, all that has been blown out of the water and the battle of political ideas is rampant again from the international stage where it's clear that uh, China has, has reverted to an authoritarian, has taken a further authoritarian turn and is not going to democratize anytime soon, um, to China being considered now a strategic rival. Uh, so the, I, the previous ideas of open free trade, globalization, exchange of technology, those are now becoming obsolete to domestic issues. You know, we have you know, issues like climate change, environmental degradation, minority rights. All these things have blown the, uh, the breath, the Overton window, if you like, of political debate wide open again. And 
the idea, and therefore, because political considerations always take priority over commercial decisions, uh, we're entering a new phase, in my view, the next evolution of capitalism, which I like to call political capitalism, which is that companies now operate, business in general, now operates in a highly politicized environment where people feel very strongly about what they what they believe in uh, politically. Uh, and that is starting to impinge on how people can do business. Um, we've had multiple episodes, you know, since I, I believe that this started 20 years ago during 9-11, when the world started to change. Since then, we've had the great financial crash, which brought us face to face with the fact that our financialized system just wasn't working. So everybody's looking for something new. Um, and the battle of ideas about what our political economy should look like uh, is rampant and affecting how business can do business. You, you mentioned a little bit with talking about China that we've entered sort of this tripolar trade block system and that this has emerged. And so how do you think this is changing the shape of geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics? So, you know, the post-war world was essentially characterized by two blocks. Um, the US-dominated Western bloc, or the US-led, if you prefer a softer term, uh, Western bloc, and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union cut itself off from the rest of the world and was therefore largely ignored, except in military terms. Um, and you know, there was cohesion in the West under US leadership. Um, since then, things have changed. Obviously, the Soviet Union has collapsed. China is resurgent uh, with a very difficult, different political philosophy. Uh, Europe is trying through the European Union to become a more significant geopolitical and commercial player. So we have the world that has evolved to essentially blocks led by, if you like, three different ideas. Uh, there's the US, the US-led block. There's Europe, which is you know, much more focused on being a regulatory superpower than a military superpower, although I have no idea whether that's going to work. And there's China, uh, which is a, just a very different, different system. Um, so now we have competition between three blocks. And, you know, as far back as the 80s, Paul Krugman wrote a paper showing that, you know, in a world of three, three blocks, competition will trump collaboration. Um, my own view, personally, is that we would be better off if Europe and the US could act as one. And we'll see if that, if that happens. Um, but, you know, the geopolitics of the world has changed very dramatically, largely driven by China, the rise of China, but also different perspectives in Europe and its relationship with the US. Um, so, you know, this has happened. And um, the world in which one conducts commerce is a very different one today from what it was in the 80s and 90s. And certainly, uh, we know just tripolar systems are just very competitive and, and less stable than a bipolar system, as you suggest, that having the United States and the European Union actually collaborate and work together would create that bipolar structure that we saw 
politically and economically uh, sort of countering each other during the Cold War, which seems presumably would be a lot healthier when moving in the direction that um, we would like to see things go. Yes, I think that would, that's right. I mean, there are issues, um, but if there is if there is any positive at all, and it's hard to even think about anything positive about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that it has unified, it has, it has drawn, you know, focused minds on the need for um, Western unity. Absolutely. I agree with you in that. I think especially Putin could not have predicted how the effect this would have had on actually solidifying NATO and reviving NATO in a way that that wouldn't have happened without that invasion. Uh, that's right. And we'll see how that we'll see how that evolves. It's it's early days yet. One of the main arguments in the new political capitalism is that business and politics are inseparable. How do you see relations between business and politics? So, you know, business and politics have always been inseparable because they are two big driving forces of our society. Um, <clears throat> the, the relationship is, as somebody described it to me, it's like a three the three-bodied problem in physics. There is no equilibrium. It is always changing, depending on the political winds, depending on business needs, depending on you know, changing perspectives in the world. So the two are intertwined, but it's a very dynamic, ever-evolving relationship, never stable, um, uh, except for you know, relatively short periods of time in the long span of history. Uh, <clears throat> and in, in discussing that, I think it's important that we get some definitions, some, some common definitions. So I'd like to start, if, if I may, by saying what I mean by the word politics. Because when you walk in the streets and start talking politics to people, they immediately go to electoral politics and party politics. Absolutely. I think that that's the only thing that people uh, think that politics is about. And when I was doing my, my degree, people thought, oh, kept asking me, you, you want to be president? I'm like, no, I don't want to be president. <laughs> right? They don't understand what politics really is. No. So my definition of politics is, is, is twofold. You know, the first is that politics is essentially the mechanism by which we collectively decide what sort of society we want to live in. That's what I see as the purpose of the political process. Um, and by doing it politically, um, through discussion, through even an adversarial process between, between political parties with different ideas, by doing it that way, in a society where everybody has different ideas, different wants and different needs and, and different political views, um, we do it politically and therefore peacefully, as opposed to fighting it out. So, so politics is vital in terms of finding ways forward in societies where everybody wants something different. Um, and the political process allows us to move forward in a pluralistic society without coming to blows too often. Um, so it, it is a vital, you know, it's, 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 it's a vital aspect of our societies. Um, and it's a, to, to some extent, it's a process of conciliation. Although we see it as an adversarial process, the adversarial process of party politics is simply the way in which 
we end up choosing which direction we want to go. So it's, it's a way of saying, okay, everybody has different views, but somehow we have to move forward. So if you think of politics in that sense, then all of us are interested in that uh, because it affects all our lives. And business can't absolve itself because it has a huge impact on the kind of society in which we live. It employs people or it fires people. It pays them well or doesn't pay them well. It, has, it de determines working conditions. It determines which parts of the country investments go into. Um, it has big, a big voice in terms of lobbying power. So, so business, you know, the idea that somehow business is or ever was apolitical is abject nonsense. Um, it is, you know, business is an integral and very important part of our society. And its role in our society is much bigger and much more important than simply making the next quarterly numbers. Certainly, there's a much more symbiotic relationship between business and politics than, than most people realize. And that's something I think that you do a really good job in your book of really trying to flesh out and, and give it lots of examples to demonstrate how this is the case. Yes. I mean, a lot of business people you speak to, um, you know, especially those brought up uh, and formed like me <laughs> in the 80s and 90s, um, the idea is that the best thing that government can do uh, for business is to keep out of the way. But when you examine that, it, it just doesn't hold any water. I mean, it, you know, when, when, when two companies uh, or businesses come in conflict because somebody has broken a contract, um, you know, they seek the, you know, the powers of the state through the judicial system to arbitrate that dispute. You know, you need that, that state-built uh, judicial system in order to have contract law. Um, you know, markets can't operate without rules. And who sets those rules? The political system. Um, you know, I don't see many businesses fleeing and going to failed states that have no government. Uh, because we know the chaos that, that those sorts of states have. So having a, a state, a functioning state, a government, one that sets and enforces the rules of play, if you like, in the, in the market game, is essential for businesses to operate successfully. Um, so, you know, it is a symbiotic relationship in that sense, in that business just couldn't operate without the machinery of government, you know, essentially putting some kind of order into markets. I think that a really great example you give in your book to demonstrate this parallel is comes from the world of sports. Um, you talk about football uh, in the U.S. We refer to this as soccer, but most of the rest of the world knows football. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. Yes. Well, imagine taking 22 players uh, onto a green field and saying, go ahead. It's a free market. Play the game. And everybody would look at you and say, what game? What are the rules of the game? What are we supposed to do? What are we, you know, how does one win or lose this game? How does, you know, what, what are the rules? Can we knock each other on the head or, or, or what? You know, what, what are the rules of the game? Without rules of the game, you don't have a game. 
And it's the same in markets. Without rules within which markets operate, and which we all now take for granted by and large, um, you can't have a market economy. Uh, it's like it's again. You're, it's like taking 22 players, putting them on a green field, and say it's a free for all. Go play the game. Nobody knows what to do. Um, so it's the same. It's the same parallel. Markets are essentially political constructs. They're not commercial constructs. They're political constructs within which commerce can happen in an orderly and predictable way. And I think that your your point about corporations turning to the legal system for arbitration and to sort out their problems is really important and that a lot of people don't even realize the importance of LLCs for doing business and the fact that, you know, where would corporations be without the state-backed protection? Could you talk a little bit about LLCs? Yes. So, you know, I mean, limited liability companies, the, 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 the idea of, uh, I mean, the joint stock corporation originated, depending on who you ask, either in England or in China. Um, but the Dutch invention was limited liability. And what happened is that the Dutch wanted to mount these long range uh, maritime ex uh, expeditions of exploration in colonial times, and they couldn't get investors because they were too risky. Uh, and if they were liable for all the losses, nobody would invest. So they, invest, they invented the idea of limited liability, which uh, produced a torrent of investment. Um, so it was a rule set by government that gave some protections and that unleashed, an, uh, uh, an, it was an idea that unleashed a huge amount of private investment and eventually gave us the Industrial Revolution. So without limited liability, which was, again, a government intervention in the market to set the rules of the game, we would never have had the investments necessary before our Industrial Revolution, which just shows how what so many people complain about under the kind of catch-all moniker of regulation actually puts, you know, gives benefits and creates an environment in which business can invest with a degree of certainty and knowing their risks. So when people say, let's get rid of all regulations, I always say, okay, should we get rid of limited liability as the first one? And obviously everybody steps back. Um, so, you know, we need to be a little bit more sophisticated than this idea of deregulation is the answer to everything. Oh, there are so many different directions I could go with what you said. Um, I think the first one I'm going to ask, though, is uh, you talk about hurricane insurance as sort of the same in the same way as what you were just describing. Could you talk about why hurricane insurance is such an apt example of the importance of politics to both business and people? Right. So, you know, I used to live in Florida uh, for a while and uh, I used to have a boat <laughs> uh, and getting insurance in Florida, both for your home and for your boat, is very difficult because the risks from hurricanes are very large and insurance companies don't want to carry those full risks. So they are underwritten, essentially, by government. Um, and without that government support, it would be impossible to have commercial insurance in Florida for hurricanes. So, you know, you and I, if we owned a house or a boat or whatever in Florida, would have to have it uninsured, take, carrying all the risk. Um, 
and insurance companies couldn't do business in Florida because it wasn't, it is, it's, it, the risks are just too high. So here you have a government intervention that essentially creates and props up the insurance market when risks are too high. Uh, it's kind of the risk carrier of last resort. Um, and we saw the same thing during the COVID pandemic. You know, a lot of businesses who have spent decades complaining about government intervention very happily held their hand out um, to be supported by government uh, during the pandemic, similarly during the great financial crash. Um, so, you know, it's, it's essential to have this kind of insurance of last resort or this support of last resort, without which our economies would collapse whenever we had a crisis. And even without a crisis, in areas like hurricane insurance, they wouldn't be able to function. Arguably, both businesses and citizens don't really appreciate their dependence on the state. And so how, you know, basically what you're saying here is that regulation is arguably a public good. It is. I mean, you know, none of us want that. I mean, how many of us would be happy <clears throat> to um, give our children a pharmaceutical product that was totally unregulated and hadn't been tested and hadn't been approved by the FDA? How many of us would be happy to fly on an airline that said, I don't want to abide by any of the safety regulations. I'm going to do my own thing. How many of us would be happy to invest in an, to with a totally unregulated investment management company? The reality is none of us would. We want those regulations because they make us feel safer. They make us feel that people are playing by some kind of rules. Um, so, you know, it is a public good if focused in that way. The issue, of course, is that Unfortunately, I mean, as they used to say, if, if, if there were no criminals, you'd need no police. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are enough bad players in the world that a lot of regulatory time is taken up trying to control those bad players. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. It's very difficult because people find their way around it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a huge cost and it takes up a lot of regulatory time. Whereas ideally, we would spend more time on formulating regulations that make markets work better. Um, that's also difficult uh, and also takes time. And, you know, regulators' time is, is, is split between these two functions. But both of them are a public good. Ideally, that's how the neoliberal economic system would work, is that there would be one unified policy that everyone would follow. But for reasons that we'll get into later, um, that's not really how the world has turned out. But I would also like to go a little bit more on regulation. Can you also make the case that deregulation can also be a public good? Sure. I mean, I think, I think in the balance... Well, let, let's, let's start from the business perspective. Um, in general, businesses like stability. So when you add regulations, they don't like it because they have to change what they do. Some businesses even don't like it when you deregulate because then they also have to change what they do and how they do it. Um, so, you know, the question is, you know, I'm, my political philosophy, I guess, is started as a kind of classical English liberal very different from liberal as you understand it in the states um so so you know 
my view is you need minimum government, but you need government and you need government to be powerful. And, you know, that judgment as to how much regulation you need in order for the world and your society to function well um, is a difficult political judgment. And, you know, some political philosophies will tend to um, see more and more need for government intervention. Some political philosophies will tend to see less and less need for government intervention. Uh, Nobody's arguing that we don't need any, um, but it's a judgment call. So, so, you know, how how you balance that is difficult, and it tends to happen in response to things that happened in the market. So, you know, when we had the great financial crash, people said, oh, our financial markets aren't working well. We need to regulate them more and in a different way for them to work. So that's a reaction to what happened. And a lot of regulation is unfortunately reactive rather than proactive because there are so many things going wrong. And when people say, well, we've seen such a rise and and, and explosion of government intervention and regulation over the past hundred years or whatever it is, well, that's not surprising because our societies, our economies, the way we do business, um, the way we do local and global business has all become so much more complex uh, that it's, it's, it's unavoidable that with increasing complexity, you have to have more rules of the game. And that sort of brings us to why we have the climate change issues we have. <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, we, you know, it's, 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 um, we live in a very complex political economy uh, and every day it's becoming more complex. I mean, we've, we are seeing now you know, the complexities of digitization. You know, we all thought this was a great thing and it is a great thing and it can, can, can give us, you know, a lot of benefits. But, you know, we also know now that it's got issues, you know, from how AI operates that we really don't understand and we don't understand what, what impact that's going to have on our own personal lives, for instance, when you know healthcare decisions or healthcare insurance decisions are made by algorithm that nobody knows what's in them anymore. Um, you know, from that to all these vast transnational financial flows, um, you know, all these things have to operate within some set of rules, and it's hugely complicated to get them right. And we'll never get them right. The only thing is, you know. Can we get them somewhat less wrong? I appreciate that you uh, raised the often overlooked point that multinational corporations eagerly enter China's market, yet gripe about policies where they're headquartered. Can you talk more about the necessity of democratic foundation? Sure. So, you know, throughout the past, whatever it is, 20, 30 years, um, many multinational companies uh, saw China as a gold mine, here's a billion consumers about to get wealthier. We have to be in there. And they were willing to put up with the constraints placed upon them by an authoritarian regime. 
that is un- always unpredictable because an authoritarian regime can change its views, as we've seen in the last several months, from one day to the next and suddenly clamp down on business and wipe out $2 trillion of value. Um, <clears throat> so they, they eagerly entered the Chinese market because there was money to be made and they were forced to do joint ventures. They were forced to um, you know, give away their technology. They were forced to abide by laws uh, and, and, and regulations on things like free speech, et cetera, that they would never have accepted had they be, had somebody ever tried that to do that to them in the US. So it's kind of double standards. Okay, there's enough money to be made in China that will put up with all this regulation, will put up with all this imposition, will put up <laughs> with government's tentacles extending, you know, right into our business and right into uh, the business of the local companies that we're partnering with. But if you ever suggested that that could happen or that they would put up with that in the US, you'd have revolt. Um, And, you know, that should give us faith, if you like, in the democratic system, that we expect more of it. Um, We expect certain standards to be upheld. Uh, we expect a degree of freedom. Uh, we expect freedom of expression. We expect things, technology not to be stolen from us. That's all a function of our democratic system. That didn't arise out of nowhere. It, it's, it is a consequence of our politics. It's a consequence of the political system that we have, which you can contrast very clearly with uh, regimes like we see in China. And we've seen the same thing happening with China's Belt and Road Initiative, with countries falling into the same sort of trap that corporations had. And how is this, how is this um, different from what has been recently conceived with the G7's Green Belt and Road Initiative counter-initiative? So China has been very um, clever um, and has spread its influence through commercial means uh, in Africa, in parts of Europe, even um, certainly in, in, in uh, the eastern, you know, the western part of Asia. Um, they've, they've invested, well, one can argue whether it's investment. They've certainly lent money to build infrastructure. Uh, they've acquired a lot of strategic, uh, um, important strategic infrastructure points. Um, they've um, essentially put some countries, particularly African countries, in what is essentially debt bondage. Um, and everybody went along with it because for two reasons. One, the money is tempting. And it always is, especially if you need it. Um, and second, we were still all under the delusion that, that through trade with China, there was this inexorable move to a more democratic, more open China. We all believe that. Um, now, of course, all this has come back to haunt us. And it's very clear how you know, countries in general, China, one of them, use commerce as a political tool. So if you become dependent on China, either as a market or as a source of, say, rare earths, then such dependency makes you vulnerable. 
because it can be withheld. You know, those things can be withheld. And we're seeing now um, essentially conflict through commercial means. Uh, I mean, Australia was sanctioned uh, by China because it uttered things that the uh, Chinese Communist Party didn't like. Um, little Lithuania is standing up to, uh, to China and has actually opened an embassy in, in Taipei. Um, so, you know, essentially commerce, international commerce and geopolitics are again intertwined. And as somebody put it, it's essentially, um, how was it, the language of war using the grammar of commerce. Um, so it's, it's using commercial means uh, in order to put political pressure. And we're seeing it the other way now, of course. All the sanctions imposed on Russia uh, are, again, the use of commercial tools as part of the conflict. Yeah, and we even see countries like, to your previous point, like Malaysia, trying to renegotiate their BRI terms, um, recognizing sort of what they got themselves into and, and have a little bit more leverage than most of the countries in Africa do, I think. Um, and this actually, as, as you led to, um, connects well with what is going on with Russia and Germany's dilemma now with the Nord Stream 2 oil pipeline, the situation they got themselves into, as you explained, with sort of anticipating the direction things would be going. So how does this project serve as a good example of how a country gets caught in the dynamics of eroding and developing political structures? So, so... I think there are two, um, we, we need to kind of divide what people see, split what people see into two things. One is the facts and the other are the hopes. Um, so if one looks at the facts of Russia's behavior over the last 20 or 30 years, there was really no reason to believe that Russia was going to open up, democratize, uh, give up what is essentially single-party tyrannical rule. Uh, if you look at their actions, nothing, you know, their invasion of Georgia, Chechnya, um, their, their behavior in Syria. If you, if you look at everything that Russia did, there's no, there was no reason to believe that Russia was on a path of becoming an open liberal democracy. Uh, and reliable and trustworthy partner. On the other hand, you have the language of hope, and everybody hoped that that would happen. And Germany is in a particularly um, unusual uh, situation historically. I mean, Germany has always been, has always had one eye to the West, um, with the Rhine as the border, if you like, looking towards the West, and one eye to the east with the river Elbe as the border, looking out towards the Slavic world. And, and, you know, from the days of Prussia and everything else, Germany always had, you know, the German imperial eagle, if you remember, had, uh, you know, two faces facing in different directions. Um, you know, one facing west, one facing east. And R Germany has always tried to find ways to act as the bridge between uh, the East and the West. And things like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and many other commercial initiatives were part of this kind of Ostpolitik, 
that Germany uh, developed post-war with the idea that we have to be friendly to Russia, we have to bring it into the fold, and we're going to do our best of doing that through trade. Um, and this idea that co- countries that trade with each other don't fight each other became almost, you know, almost like gospel through the 80s, 90s, and, and early this century. And yet, if you look historically, there is zero evidence that this is the case. Um, you know, the First World War broke out when global trade had never been higher. So there is absolutely zero evidence that trade actually prevents conflict. But we continued to believe it, and the Germans continued to believe it. And the Germans, being you know, geographically where they are, uh, looking both east and west, had this Ostpolitik, which, as a matter of principle, is nothing wrong with it. It's just that I think they let it, they let it, uh, they let it slip over the line from a partnership of equals to a dependence. And once you become dependent on someone, uh, then that, that, that is not a reliably friendly state, then that becomes problematic for your politics, for your geopolitics. Certainly, one could see out of self-interest, Germany necessarily has this sort of dual uh, vision, <laughs> having to have dual vision of what's going on around them. Yes. I mean, they've, they've always had it. It's, uh, if you read through German history, um, you know, they're, 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 they're trying, the, the, their attempts and, 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 you know, sometimes successful attempts at balancing the, the, the cultures of the Slavic world with the, with the culture of the, with the European culture, um, they're stuck there in the middle. So they have to find uh, a way of operating. So to change things up... You illustrate through Harley-Davidson and Brexit how recent populist movements have affected businesses. Why do you argue that it's more accurate to describe populists as insurgent parties that could be equated with entrepreneurs? I thought that was really interesting. Well, yes, I, I don't like the term populist because to me it doesn't mean anything. And it's so often used by people to dismiss those with whom they disagree. Um, so, you know, somebody comes up with a political idea. We all have the, the right to come up with political ideas, sets up a party or, or takes over an existing party. Um, and we don't like what he or she is doing. So we dismiss them as populists and they don't need to be considered anymore. And yet here are parties and individuals who are winning huge number of votes from the public. So they must be offering something that resonates with the population. Um, they're usually um, well out of the mainstream. So I define entrepreneurs as people who imagine a different world and set out to do something to create that different world. And to some extent, these insurgent parties uh, even though some of us may disagree fundamentally with what they stand for, also imagine a different world. And they don't play by the normal rules of the game, just like entrepreneurs are successful because they do things differently. 
you know, when Dell, when Michael Dell set up his business, he was the first one to come up with the idea, well, first you sell the computers and then you build them. Now, that was a revolutionary idea that nobody thought about at the time. Uh, and he built a hugely successful business on the back of it. So, so these insurgent parties basically break out of the mainstream. They have different ideas. They want to upset the status quo um, to some extent that gives me a little bit, as, a, as, as I mentioned, as a classical English liberal, never happy with the status quo, uh, that gives, uh, you know, uh, generates some sympathy. Um, so, so what they do is they come into the political field with new ideas, uh, usually appealing to people's quite deep-seated emotional needs. Um, and they're very good at that. Um, and they get lots of people voting for them. So I like to call them insurgents, um, you know, rejecting the status quo, uh, trying to change politics and do it in a very different way. And they are useful because, you know, insurgents are useful and people with new ideas and different ideas are useful. And in general, the mainstream over the past 10, 15 years the mainstream of politics has found it rather difficult to find a way of countering these movements, um, largely because the mainstream is the mainstream and therefore stuck in its way of doing things. Um, so these people shake things up and you know, not all are positive. In fact, quite a lot of them, I feel personally, uh, are quite negative. But you need that sort of thing to shake up the system. Otherwise, everybody becomes complacent and we get into a slow decline. And as you argue in your book, corporations need to also be more aware of what's going on and also consumer social concerns and the, what the, taking the political temperature. So how do business leaders discern what's between sort of like the latest fad social issue and where they need to actually seriously take it, action? Well, this is a skill, and it's a skill that needs to be developed. These political skills, the skills of reading the political runes, if you like, of getting the, the, putting out your political antennae, getting a feel of you know, what the socio-cultural political environment is and which way it's evolving, these are skills that need to be developed. And the reason they need to be developed is because they were never needed before. You know, throughout the 80s, 90s, and first part of this century, nobody needed these skills. You know, what you needed was spreadsheet-based skills, everything that's measurable, um, and how you're going to make a good rate of return, and how you're going to push up your stock price, um, and, you know, how you learn about corporate finance. Those were the skills that were needed, valued, and were therefore developed within corporations. These political skills that are much softer, they're much more ephemeral, if you like. They're, they're very difficult to get your armor around. You, you need to develop a feel for it, um, are much more difficult, and they're going to need to be developed. And even if you've developed the skills of understanding what's going on, you then have to develop the political skills of dealing with it. 
you know, how do you deal when you have a bunch of activists on your doorstep saying you're not doing this, 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 and the other? How do you deal with that? That, again, is a set of political skills that need to be developed. And it's going to take some time. But the companies, as always in, the, in times of change, the companies that develop these skills most quickly are the ones that are going to be more successful. And I think that, that that's something that people, but especially businesses, really don't appreciate the various types of capital that are important because they can't be measured, like social capital and environmental capital and some of the other types that you talk about in your book. But those are things, because they're not quantifiable, they get left behind. They do. And everybody quotes Deming and says, you know, what what, uh, you can't manage, what you can't measure or something like that. And if you look at the original quote, it's actually not like it's not that at all. What he says is, you know, we tend we tend to we tend to manage what we can measure, but a lot of important things can't be measured. He makes that very explicit. And somehow that's got lost in this in these repeated Chinese whispers. And you um, have, I have that as a footnote in your book that people should actually read when they read your book. <laughs> right. Um, so. So, yes, a lot of these things are not measurable in the traditional sense. Um, but, you know, we all do things every day, every day of our life on the basis of non-measurement. You know, when, when, when somebody decides whether they're going to take a job for a little bit more money, but it means spending less time with his family and children, he can't measure, he or she can't measure the value of spending more time with your family and children, but we still make that decision. You know, you can measure the money, but you can't measure the other thing. But we still are happy to trade those things off and make those decisions. So there's nothing unusual about making decisions on the basis of things that can't be measured in numbers. It's just that we've forgotten that and we've kind of expungated it from business management and from, you know, from what people are taught in business school and from how people manage their businesses. But it's not real life. <laughs> um, in real life, we trade things off that we can't measure. Yeah, and I think that that is why Tony's Chalk Alonely is actually a really good example about what you were just talking about. It also demonstrates that businesses can succeed while being mission-driven and taking those important social and other capital, environmental and human rights issues and all, all those things into consideration. Yes. And if one wants to convert that into the language of business, um, one can say there is a demand now. You know, there is, there is a demand among citizens. I don't like, as you've seen in the book, I don't like to call people consumers. Um, there is a demand about among citizens for products that that are produced by companies that have some sort of mission, some sort of purpose, some sort of you know, if you like, we can call it ethical. Although I'm not too comfortable with that, um, but anyway, there is a demand for that. Um, I mean, Chodesh Chakalonli is 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 one uh, of the ones that that I mentioned that they they. They uh, set out to produce um, slave-free chocolate, and it's extremely difficult to do so, but they did, and their business has been very successful. Patagonia, from the day it was started, 
was an environmental activism focused company. And they've built a huge ecosystem of customers who believe in that and want to be part of that community by buying their products, by attending their environmental uh, events, uh, by supporting environmental causes, etc. So, you know, it's, it's a form of differentiation. It's a form of, of finding a customer base that is driven by these things. And that customer base, I suggest, is ever increasing and is likely to increase even more over the next 20, 30 years. And it's common to see this sort of inspirational stories that you've mentioned um, of how a business can be based on a socially conscious mission, but you also consider, and and I thought this was really good because a lot of people often miss this side of it, how this might not be scalable for a company, especially when talking about chocolate, the size of like Nestle or Hershey, and that even as Tony's itself changes management and has grown, it might not even be able to maintain its original objectives. Yes. So Tony's Chuckle Only was a small uh, startup, essentially, and they didn't need to source a large volume of cocoa beans. So they could make, um, they could do deals with, with individual farmers in the Ivory Coast or other places in Africa, look after those farmers, pay them a decent amount and get cocoa beans from them. But once you grow to a certain size, if you're a Nestle, and you have to buy vast volumes of cocoa beans, then you have to buy them on the spot market. And that has cocoa beans that come from anywhere and everywhere, and you can't trace their roots. So it's very difficult at that scale um, to have control over your supply chain. And a lot of companies are coming under pressure now, of course, because of slave labor and, un, un, you know, un, uh, and, and lots of environmental damage and whatever that happens in their supply chain. And I think many companies are <clears throat> working towards improving them, improving that. Uh, some are not. You know, some couldn't give a damn. That's fine. That's their choice. Um, but many companies are moving to try and clean up, if you like, their supply chain. Um, and if you're an activist pressuring companies to do this, that's fine. But you must also realize that it's actually a very difficult thing to do. So it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. And it can't be achieved overnight. But people are trying. So there will come a time, who knows when, when the pressure on child labor in uh, the chocolate supply chain will have grown so great and when even the Nestle's of this world and the other big, the Hershey's and the other big producers are pushing in that direction, that eventually we will eliminate slave labor and child labor in chocolate supply chains. But we're not there today. And this sort of brings up two sort of connected points. So how do we move toward a more sustainable world if CEOs continue to be confronted with these sort of challenges. And you spent a lot of time with business executives advising them, and they have sort of knee-jerk reactions to policies being put into place and so forth, right, government regulation. And then there's also that other side of it, which is we see a lot more people um, investing in ESG funds. So what do you think on this? <laughs> yes. So, so I think that, you know, we, we're in a transitional phase. And transitions are always difficult for everybody. Um, so, you know, it's not going to be nice and smooth. You know, the world doesn't move in a neat straight line from point A to point B. 
you know, I, I think of, you know, a lot of business people have the mindset and how they run their business, which is quite right for running a business, that it's like a powerboat, that you set your GPS in a straight line from A to B, and you get there in the straightest and quickest and most efficient way possible. Well, societies don't evolve like that. It's messy. Um, in the book, I say, I think it's more like a sailing boat in a storm where you have to tack this way and that with the prevailing winds, where you sometimes take on water, sometimes you get pushed back a couple of miles because the winds are against you. The whole thing is messy. And we have to accept that societies evolve in a messy, complex, unpredictable way, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps to the left. Um, so, so let's accept that that's the way progress happens and that's the way it's going to happen in this case too. One of the issues I think that we need to be careful of is that businesses today are coming under pressure from all sides. They are being subjected to an alphabet soup of things they have to do with ESG, CSR, looking after the SDGs, corporate digital responsibility, purpose, sustainability. You know, now we have, I was at a meeting recently of how can business save our democracy? You know, all sorts of huge expectations and lots of things being thrown at business that the danger is that businesses will get paralyzed like deer in the headlights because it's all just too much. Uh, and that is a danger we have to be careful of. So the way I like to put it to business people is forget all these letters, forget this alphabet soup, just forget it all. Just put it to one side and don't pay a blind bit of notice to it. The only thing you need to think about is that the world in which you operate today is a different world from what it was 20 years ago. And any business has to operate in a way that is appropriate to the socio-cultural political environment in which it finds itself. So look around you, look at how the socio-economic environment is changing. Make sure you have the systems in place to understand that, and then build that in to how you run your operations and learn to look at your business from the outside in. So learn to look at how other people see you. Now, one of the issues we've had in, in this period we've been through of financialized capitalism is that the primary customer for most CEOs are the Wall Street analysts. Um, so, you know, everything is focused on that. You think, how do I get my stock price up? Um, then you start to say, okay, what operation do I need to get my stock price up? And, 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 you know, how do I make that work? Well, if you look at it the other way and say, how do I operate successfully in this new, rather complex, very different environment? Um, and then how do I do that profitably? Then you start looking at your business as a fundamentally different way. It's a, it's a change from seeing profit as the purpose of business to seeing profit as simply the consequence of doing good business in the environment in which you, you live. I definitely felt like the new political capitalism was a plea to business leaders to do exactly these things that you're describing and understand the political system that they necessarily must work within and the political temperature and culture and so forth. Um, and so this 
So there's sort of pros and cons of socially responsible investing. And also, I think it's really important point that you make too, that no brand can remain apolitical for too long. No, it it, it can't these days. Because, you know, again, the world has changed. There was a time when business and government could do deals in a back room uh, in a non-transparent manner. Where, where companies could make political donations and nobody knew about them, where business had a huge share of voice in the kind of, in, in, the, in the town square, if you like. Um, and that's all changed. You know, now we have very strong civil society groups that have a big share of voice. We have activist citizens who will not put up with certain things. Um, we have social media that dilutes the voice of business uh, because now everybody has a voice, you know, with all the disadvantages that we know about of social media, it has given a lot more people a voice. Um, You know, when you make political donations now, they're all transparent uh, because they're recorded. So we live in an age which is much more open, thankfully, much more transparent, much easier to hold people to account. Um, And, you know, one needs to learn how to operate in that. I remember having a boss once many years ago who said to me, never say write, um, or, or never say write or do anything that you're not happy to see on the, on the front page of the New York Times. And the likelihood that things will get to the front page of the New York Times today is so much higher than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. So, so we're operating, businesses are operating in a very difficult, different environment. And my suggestion to business is not, you know, uh, what I say to people is not do this out of kind of because I'm moralizing and I'm imposing my morals on, on you and I'm telling you you should do th- this because I think it's a good thing. No, do all this because this is the only way you're going to be successful over the next decade or two. And I think you really sort of come full circle back to my initial question, um, questions about the direction the world is going and so forth, and that you do conclude on a positive note. Um, But a lot of what you're talking about, because necessarily businesses operate within developed countries and developed economies, um, that this, you know, we have this still issue of there's the overwhelming majority of the world is not developed and that we have this globalization of labor and resources that has really exacerbated the global economic divide. And yet, even with all of that in mind, you still kind of conclude on this positive note and highlight that the many ways that there's sort of this disconnect between those in business and government and yet you assert that we should be hopeful. So why, was, why would you say that is? Well, I think, you know, it's again, it's a glass half full, glass half empty uh, perspective. So let's take globalization as, as one example. You know, globalization, the hyper globalization that we saw in the 90s and, 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 and subsequently um, <clears throat> has had many, many issues and many, many faults. Um, and we know what those are. But it has also helped to shift some labor, although it's taken labor away from the former Rust Belt in in the US, and that hasn't been dealt with particularly well. Um, It's also given employment and raised the standard of living and raised the amount of wealth 
in some pretty poor countries. Um, so that, that has been a positive. Um, I mean, the number of people today living in, you know, absolute poverty as defined by whoever, the World Bank or whoever it is, you know, it has dropped dramatically over the last 50 years. So, so we're seeing a lot of positives for both developed and, and developing countries. Um, the other thing I think, and this, this maybe speaks both to the hope and to the persistent aspects of, divide, of division, we've seen, you know, only in these last couple of years, just how positive um, can be a collaboration between government and business with a shared objective in the development and rollout of anti-COVID vaccines. I mean, that was a partnership between governments and private business that gave us multiple effective COVID vaccines in a remarkably short period of time. Um, manufacture of those vaccines of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of doses of those vaccines in record time and the distribution and putting them into people's arms, you know, in a program that had been, would have been unthinkable if you had. So this collaboration can give us so many benefits if it is realized that government and business and society all ultimately have the same objective and we can work together towards it. Now, the divide, of course, still persists in that a lot of these vaccines didn't get to, develop, to developing countries. And we're trying to fix that now. And hopefully we'll fix it you know, over the next, in the coming months. Um, but I think you can see in the COVID experience just how powerful the social, economic, um, and, and, and societal benefits are when government and business understand that they share a common purpose and that they can work together to move in that direction, not through nationalization and government taking over everything. No, simply through collaboration. I wish we had more time to talk. It was really nice to see that when you were talking about globalization, you actually used the term appropriately um, as focused on social relations and communication, which a lot of people instead equate as sort of free trade. Um, but you have given me a lot of time today and have said just really fascinating talking with you. Um, and so with that, we'll close. Thank you so much, Joe. I really enjoyed talking to you and really appreciated you taking the time uh, out with for me today. Thank you for having me, and I enjoyed this conversation very much. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.